here tonight, man, what it is. Good to be in the house of the Lord with each and every one of you. It's good to be back in the Word of God in Romans chapter number 8. Take your Bibles, please. Turn with me over there. We're going to get right into the Word of God this evening. I've heard it said that Romans chapter 8 is the, uh, the greatest chapter in all the Word of God. Now, I want to be honest with you folks. I struggle to say that one chapter is the greatest tra- chapter in all the Word of God. I mean, every chapter is important for every chapter is inspired. Everything from Genesis to Revelation in all 66 books, I believe to be uh, the inspired Word of God, the absolute truth of what God has said. And so it's hard for me to just pick out one chapter and say that's the greatest. There's a lot of chapters that really speak to my heart, and God has used uh, to encourage me and to teach me and to bless me. And so it's hard to just pick out one chapter. However, after I've spent some time studying Romans chapter 8, and after we've spent the last six, seven, I think this is probably the sixth or seventh week that we've been in Romans chapter uh, number 8, it's hard for me to argue with anyone who believes that this is the greatest chapter. For in Romans chapter number 8, by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Paul begins outlining for us all of the great blessings that come to the believer, the benefits of having a personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Because that's really who uh, Paul is writing to here in the 8th chapter of Romans. Those who are in Christ. Those who have a relationship with Jesus. Now what's Paul showed us? Paul has shown us through this. He's taught us. God himself has taught us through Paul um, that this relationship to God is first and foremost initiated by the shed blood of God the Son. How many of you believe tonight that Jesus shed his blood for our sin? That he paid the price for my sin and your sin and for those who've trusted in the finished work of Christ for the forgiveness of their sin, Paul makes it clear that we are free from judgment and now there is therefore no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. And so we praise the Lord for that. We have freedom from condemnation, freedom from judgment of our sin because Jesus paid our sin debt and he forgave our sin when we chose to trust in him. What a blessing that truly is. I praise the Lord for that. We not only see that uh, this relationship we have with Christ is initiated by the shed blood of God the Son, but we also see that it's accomplished by the finished work um, of or, or the, uh, the, the precious work of God the Holy Spirit. The Bible says, Romans chapter 8, verse number 11, that the same Spirit that uh, once raised Jesus up on that first Easter morning so that He might walk in the newness of life, it now raises us up from our spiritual deadness so that we might walk in the newness of life. So it's through the indwelling power of God the Holy Spirit that we are enabled to live lives pleasing unto the Lord. Now we're free from defeat. We no longer have to live after the old sinful nature. Now we can live in the Spirit. Now we can allow the Spirit to work on us, work in us, and work through us to accomplish God's goodwill and purpose in our lives. So we're free from judgment. There's no condemnation. We're free from defeat. Uh, Folks, there's no obligation to the old sinful nature. Now we've been made new in Christ to walk in the Spirit. And I'm so very thankful for that truth tonight. Not only have we saw that this relationship is initiated by the shed blood of God the Son, and it's uh, then accomplished by the precious work of God the Holy Spirit. Last week, 
I saw something in here that truly blessed my soul, and I hope it blessed you as well. This is also finished by the plan and purpose of the sovereign God we serve, God the Father. And so, folks, I want you to know, regardless of what sufferings we face, we are free from discouragement because we understand God the Father still on the throne. How many of you believe that tonight? There's a lot of stuff going on in our world today that it seems as though our world has gone crazy. Uh, what used to be right is now considered wrong, and what used to be wrong is now considered right. And it seems like we're in an episode of the Twilight Zone when I turn on my news daily. But I want you to understand and know, folks, listen to me. God is still on the throne. We can trust as God's people. He will finish His plan and purpose, by, uh, uh, and He's going to do it because He's sovereign, because He is in complete control. We don't have to worry about that. Paul made that abundantly clear to us last week when he said in Romans 8, 28 and 8 that we know all things work together for the good of them that love the Lord and are called according to his purpose. So God uses all things in our lives, things that we perceive to be good, things that we even perceive to be bad. God can take all of that and use it for our good and his glory to accomplish his purpose. And that purpose, that plan began, the Bible teaches, before the foundation of the world. It says in Romans 8, 29 that God foreknew who would become like his son Jesus. Uh, that's what Romans 8, 29 is all about. It's actually telling us the purpose for which we were saved in the first place. How do you understand? The purpose for me being saved, and if you've been saved, the purpose for you being saved is so that you might become like Jesus. And so Paul says it very uh, eloquently and, and, and man powerfully. He says, Romans 8, 29, for whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his son that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. So the purpose for God uh, saving us is so that we might ultimately become like Jesus. Look at the th verse 30. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called. And whom he called, them he also glorified. And whom he just, and, and, and uh, excuse me, them he also justified. And whom he justified, them he also glorified. Now, that word glorified is actually the end result of salvation. But there's a lot of other stuff that he says before we get to glorified. He says that we have been, uh, first of all, foreknown. God knew who would uh, accept him. Then it says we have been predestined in Christ to become like Jesus. And we're so very thankful for that. It is our destiny as believers to become like the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he says, those who receive the call of God, he justifies and then ultimately glorifies. Well, praise the Lord for that. When you really get a hold of what that means, I'm telling you, it's absolutely uh, life-changing. Now, let me just go ahead and say something right here before we go any further. There are some of you that's listening to me tonight who feel as though you enlisted in God's army freely. You feel like you uh, accepted the call that God gave, and you chose to call upon the Lord, and you know you've been saved. Now, there's others of you who feel like you've been drafted into God's army. You feel like God run you down and tackled you. And at the end of the day, you need to understand and know that both of those ideas we find in Scripture. 
Both of them. We find the sovereignty of God and the free will of man all throughout the Word of God. And I believe they run side by side straight through the Word of God and will run side by side straight through eternity. There is, folks, a mystery uh, in how far God comes in the salvation process and how far we come. Some of you feel like uh, that you chose to accept Christ, but you need to know if you chose to accept Christ, it's only because God called you in the first place. Because Jesus said that those who uh, come to him have to be drawn by the Father. And so do you see how that works hand in hand? God is sovereign, and I do believe he allows us to choose to accept or choose to reject for whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And so you need to understand and know the, the ultimate point that Paul is making here is, is that our ultimate purpose for those who have been born again is so that we might become like Jesus. We might be glorified. Now, what does it mean to be like Jesus? What does it mean to uh, be in this glorified position? Because it is in the past tense. Now, we understand that is our final destination. That's where God is bringing us to. But he does say uh, that we have been glorified. That is maybe uh, the most powerful statement in everything that we've read. Our salvation is so secure and our salvation is so complete, God already sees it as being completely finished. He sees us glorified in Christ. That amazes me every time I look at it, every time I think about it. Now, to be like Jesus means that we are to live life at its fullest. Do you remember what John chapter 10 and verse number 10 says? John 10 and 10 tells us plainly, Jesus said, I've come to give them life and life more abundant or life to the fullest. If, if you would tonight, take your Bibles and keep your place there in Romans chapter number 8. And let's look over at Psalm chapter number 16. Psalm 16. Look down with me to verse number 11. Psalm 16, verse number 11, the Bible says, Thou wilt show the path of life in thy presence is fullness of joy. At thy right hand there are pleasures forevermore. So what does it mean to be like Jesus, to live life in abundance to its fullest? It means that, uh, folks, there are, that we will experience um, joy that can't get any stronger and pleasures that can't last any longer. Do you see what that says there? The, that there will be um, in thy presence fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. I think he's talking about the abundance we can have in Christ. I think he's talking about that living life to the fullest that Jesus promises to all who believe. Amen. Um, I love one of my favorite preachers today is uh, J.D. Greer. Listen to what J.D. Greer says about abundant life. He says, to be like Jesus is to be fully alive. 
It means that everything physically, spiritually, and emotionally works like it's supposed to. Now, I want to tell you something. We can and we certainly do experience some abundant life here on earth. We can and we do experience some abundant living in our Christian walk with the Lord now. But we are still hindered by an imperfect world, by the devil himself, and we're still hindered by this flesh that we struggle against. But now one day, we are going to be in our glorified bodies. We're going to be just like Jesus is, and we will be able to live life in abundance in our glorified state. And I don't know about you, but I can't wait for that day. I can't wait to experience what all this means one day when I am just like Jesus is in heaven. What a blessing that is. What a hope we have in Christ. We shall be like him. That's what the Bible tells us in the book of 1 John. We will be glorified. But again, God says that in the past tense here in Romans chapter 8, he already sees it as a finished work. Uh, think about that. Let that roll around upstairs, and I promise you it's going to bless your heart. Now, we saw that uh, there is, we, get, we are free from judgment. There's no condemnation. Uh, we saw that we are free from defeat because there's no obligation to the flesh. We saw that we are free from discouragement. Uh, there's no desperation for the child of God, even in the midst of suffering, because God is working in His sovereign power to accomplish His plan and His purpose, the purpose that began before the world was even here. And so we, we see all of that is made possible because it was initiated, listen to me now, by the shed blood of God the Son. It's accomplished by the precious work of God the Holy Spirit. And it's finished ultimately uh, by the sovereign plan and purpose of God the Father. And so you need to understand your salvation is finished. Praise God. And it's all because of who God is and what He has done for you. Now then, tonight I want you to see that we are free from fear because there's no separation. Do you believe that? Do you know you don't have to live lives filled with fear? The Apostle Paul begins to tell us how we are free from fear, and he uses about five questions here to do it. And man, these questions are five questions I believe we need to build our life upon. Martin Lloyd-Jones, the great Bible commentator of years gone by, he says that uh, these five questions that Paul uses is like logic on fire. Uh, he uses a logical argument to describe who we are in Jesus and why we don't need to fear. Look what it says there in Romans chapter 8, starting in verse number 31. It says, What shall we say then to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? Now, so what's the question Paul is really asking? If a sovereign God is fulfilling his purpose in you and in me as a believer, why should we fear any opposition? Now, I want you to get what Paul is saying, and I want you to see what he's not saying too. He's not saying that just because we are a believer, there's never any opposition going to come our way. He's not saying that just because we are a believer, we are in Christ 
that we're never going to face any struggles. We're never going to face any hardships. We're never going to face any kind of bad things coming our way in our lives here on earth. That's certainly not, not what he's saying. If there's anybody who lived with the expectation of suffering and hardship, it was the Apostle Paul. I mean, this brother went through it all the time. He was shipwrecked. He was beaten. He was imprisoned. He was mocked and ridiculed. Listen, he suffered in his flesh with some kind of thorn that he prayed for the Lord to remove. We've already looked at that in our study of the book of Romans. So I want you to know Paul knew full well that suffering would come to the believer. Not because we're doing something wrong, but because we may be doing something right. Because we are living for Jesus. So Paul's not saying that just because you're a believer, you're never going to face opposition. You're never going to face suffering. But what he is saying, freedom from fear does not come because we don't face suffer and struggle and opposition. But freedom from fear comes because our Father is bigger than anything that we could possibly fear. <laughs> Amen. He truly is. If God is for us, it don't matter what comes against us. It don't matter who comes against us. It don't matter what we face if God is on our side. Do you know that, believer? Do you understand that? Because we all got stuff we're facing. We all got stuff that is opposing us. We all got stuff that we're struggling with. But you need to understand God's bigger than all that. And God will help you through whatever you face. Problems at home, problems at the workplace, problems in your parenting, problems in your marriage. Whatever you're going through, physical problems, emotional problems, relational problems, whatever you're facing, God is bigger. <laughs> Let me tell you, when I was a little boy, um, just like a lot of little boys, I thought my dad hung the moon. I mean, there was nothing that... Um, I didn't think my dad could do. I, I thought that he was the strongest. I thought he was the toughest. I really thought my dad could beat up everybody else's dad. That's just how I thought. I, I, and, and as long as I was with my father, there was not a lot I feared. And it wasn't because, folks, there was a lot that, that, that didn't come against us or a lot of danger around me because there's always danger around all of us. There's always the possibility of danger. But as long as I was with dad... I felt like I was going to make it through. I remember one time we were over at uh, the Memphis Zoo and uh, we were walking around there in the zoo and we finally made it to my favorite part where all the lions and tigers were. And so I was in there watching those lions and tigers, man, and, and just uh, having a great time, me and my family. And me and dad walked up to this lion's cage and they had this rope that came out probably, I don't know, five, six feet in front of the cage so that you couldn't get up uh, close to the cage. Uh, so the line couldn't get you. And so I'm right up next to the rope, and that line is seated all the way back at the back of the cage, and they had just fed him with this big hunk of meat. And he was, so he's back there eating on this big hunk of meat uh, in the crouch position at the back of the cage. Cage probably 10, 12 foot uh, wide there. And so I walk up to that rope, and I'm looking at that line, and just like uh, a little boy might do, I started to, to growl at him a little bit. And I would... <laughs> And he'd look around, and he'd get a little bit closer to that meat. And I'd say, <laughs> and he'd hunker down and start getting a little bit closer to that meat. And I kept, and, and man, I was laughing, and Dad was laughing, and, and um, 
He said, man, you better quit. I think he's getting mad. And so I kept on growling, barking a little bit at that lion. It was hunkering on down there even closer, trying to protect its food. And all of a sudden, he jumps up and goes, rawr, man, and jumps out of that cage. And the whole place just shook. You ever heard a lion roar? I mean, when he's really roaring? Well, that's the way he did there that day over at the zoo. And the moment he did that, I had to find where daddy was. <laughs> now, when I got where dad was, I felt like I was going to be okay. Not because there wasn't danger around me, but because I got close to my father. Are you, are you seeing what I'm, what I'm trying to get you to see tonight? Do you know that we have an enemy? And the Bible says that he is opposing us. Do you know that he is going to do everything he can to tear us limb from limb? The Bible even calls him a roaring lion. But even though we're going to face opposition from the enemy that we all have, Satan himself, you need to know as long as you stay close to daddy, as long as you stay close to God the Father, as long as God be for you, then who can be against you? That's what Paul is saying. Not that we're not going to face opposition. It's not that we won't face suffering and hard times. But even in the midst of suffering and hard times, we know God's bigger than all that. And so we're going to stick with Him. We're going to stay by Him. We're going to walk with Him. We're going to trust in Him. We're going to lean in Him. We're going to rely upon Him because, praise the Lord, He's able. And He's the God on the mountain. We know that. But He's also God in the valley. The Bible says he'll never leave us nor forsake us. He's always with us. He's God in good times and he's God in bad times. He's God when you know what to do and when you don't know what to do. You can trust him. You can lean on him. You need to love him because he loves you. If God be for you, who can be against you? That's what Paul is saying. You don't have to fear. God's on your side. But then he asked another question. Look down at verse uh, number 32. He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? So what I believe Paul is asking here, if God gave his most precious possession so that we might be saved, so that we might have relationship with him, if he took care of our greatest need, why wouldn't he take care of the lesser needs? What won't God do for us if he's given his son for us? How many of you know our greatest need was salvation? And God did everything necessary through the finished work of Jesus for us to be saved. If God will do that, if God will kill his son on a cross so that we could be born again into the family of God and our greatest need could be met, will he not also take care of the lesser needs that we have in our life? That's what Paul is saying here. So why should we fear anything in this life? We shouldn't. If God's invested this much in us, he's going to take care of his investment. I think that's what he's saying there. 
See, if God would give his only son so that we might be saved, if he will do what's necessary to bring salvation, do you not think he will help you in your marriage? If God has, uh, would save you and do what's necessary for you to be saved, do you not think God would help you in your parenting? If God has met our need of salvation, do you not think God would help you in your witnessing? If God has met our need of salvation, do you not think God would meet the need you've got to live in a way that's pleasing unto Him day by day? If he's invested this much in you, he's going to take care of his investment. He's not going to let his investment, the blood of his precious son, go to waste. Amen? Let me tell you what, I've, what I fear sometimes. I, I fear I'm going to miss God's best. Anybody else? I want to make sure I'm in the center of God's will, huh? I want to make sure that I don't miss out on what God's got for me. I want to be in the right job. I want to make the right decision concerning my family. I certainly want to be at the right church. I want to be at, I want to, I want to make sure I'm in the center of God's will. Because I don't want to displease God in any way. And I don't want to miss out on all that God has for me. Does anybody else ever feel like that? I've counseled with people before. And man, they, they, they're, and I understand where they're coming from. They're worrying about making the right decision. Brothers, I want to make sure that I'm doing what I know God wants me to do. Young people especially, man. I want to make sure I'm, I'm, I'm taking the right career path. I want, I want to make sure I'm going to the right college. I want to make sure that I'm marrying the right person. I want to make sure of all of that. I want to make sure I know what God wants for me. And we worry ourselves sick over that from time to time, don't we? Let me tell you something. Listen to me. If God has saved you, he's got more invested in your life than you do. That's what Paul is saying. If he didn't spare his son, but put his son on a cross so that you can be saved. He's got much more invested in your life than you've got invested in your life. And I can promise you, he is able and he is willing as a loving heavenly father to take care of his investment. So what I encourage you to do is pray what I try to pray regularly for myself. The sheep's prayer. Have you ever heard of the sheep's prayer? The Bible says that Jesus is the good shepherd. If you believe it, say amen. The good shepherd leads, guides, and directs his sheep. Do you believe me? And so that's how I pray. It's because sheep are stupid. And so I just pray a lot of times. That's what God calls us, sheep. Because many times we don't know which way to go. We don't know what decision to make. We'll get ourselves in trouble if we can't uh, keep our eyes on the shepherd. 
And so I'm always praying the sheets prayer. Lord, you know I don't know what's best for me. You know I don't know what my future holds. You know uh, my kids. Listen, I don't know what their future holds. I don't know what's best for them. I don't know what decision to make here. I don't know what decision to make there as a father. So Lord, as your sheep, you being my good shepherd, I'm asking that you lead God and direct me and show me in a way that I can't question. So I know it's you. And I've come to find out that works really well. That's kind of how David was talking to the Lord, or at least talking about the Lord in Psalm 23. Let's go over there and read that. Let's go back and look at it just a moment. Psalm 23. Verse number one, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures, speaks of provision. He leadeth me beside the still waters, that speaks of peace. He restores my soul, he leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. That speaks of God fulfilling his purpose. Then he says in verse four, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. So David is pretty much saying the same thing Paul was saying in the last question. It's not that you're never going to get in the shadow of death, but even when you do get in the shadow of death, you feel like this world's killing you, that God can even use that stuff, the things you perceive to be bad, to cause His, His glory to be accomplished and your good in your life. For all things... Work together for our good and His glory. Amen? Romans 8, 28. And so he says it's not that we won't get in the shadow of the valley of death, and, and the valley of the shadow of death, but when we're there, we don't have to fear evil. We don't have to live in fear. We don't have to walk in fear. We don't have to operate in fear. We don't have to make decisions in fear. For thou art with me. I don't fear because daddy's there. Amen? And daddy's bigger than anything that I might fear. Let's go on. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Now let me tell you what the rod is. The rod, the shepherd's rod, is for correction of the sheep. And the staff is for protection of the sheep. Amen? Do you remember the, the shepherd's staff that's got the, the crook on the end of it? Now, now listen to me, folks. That crook is used when the sheep get out of line, when the sheep are doing things that the sheep shouldn't do. When the sheep get themselves in danger, that crook, the shepherd will reach out and pull the sheep back from the crevice or the creek or whatever would cause the sheep to be in danger. And the rod, the other end of it, that straight part, that's to beat off the wolf that would come and take the sheep. <laughs> and so really what the Bible is saying here, our good shepherd watches over us, not only providing for us, not only giving us peace, not only fulfilling his purpose, but also he watches over us in protecting us and correcting us. Isn't he a good shepherd? Then he says something, 
Verse 5, Thou preparest a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. Thou anointest my head with oil. My cup runs over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. I'm telling you, the shepherd has much more invested in your life than you have invested in your life. And he is able and certainly willing to provide for you the lesser needs if he has provided for you your greatest need. Amen? He leads us. He guides us. He directs us. So when you're wondering which way to turn and what to do, what decision to make, pray the sheep's prayer. Lord, I can't figure it out, but I know you know. <laughs> and I want to trust you and I want to be led by you. If you'll come to him humbly, I promise you, I promise you, he will answer. He will lead God and direct. And he will cause your steps to be ordered by himself. Now let's go on. Not only do we need to see that um, the, the question in verse 31 of John, or Romans chapter 8 and, and also verse 32. But listen to this next question, the third one. Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifies. Jesus is the righteous judge. You may tell you why he's the righteous judge. Because he's the only one that's perfect. I cannot stand in judgment of someone else for I myself is I'm not perfect. I can't say whether or not another man, woman, boy, or girl will go to heaven or go to hell. I can't do that. Because folks, first of all, I don't have omniscience. I don't have all the knowledge that I need to have. And I myself... I'm a sinner. I'm just a sinner saved by grace. That's it. And so are you if you've been saved. So none of us can stand in judgment. The only one who can righteously judge is Jesus. Amen? But now the Bible says the only one who could judge us wouldn't judge us. Matter of fact, he didn't come to judge us. This is the amazing thing. He came to save us. I read to you John 3.16 and John 3.18 last week. And I did that purpose, purposefully because I, I knew he was going to be coming back to this. And I want to go back to John 3.17 this week. Let's go back over there because this will make more sense to you once you see it. John chapter 3. And the 17th verse. Watch this. For God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. I'll tell you something, man. I love that verse. Because the truth is, everybody thinks God's out to get them. God's not out to get you. He didn't come to get you, to condemn you. He came to save you. Jesus didn't come for the purpose 
of judging you, condemning you. He came to save you. The only one who could judge you was Jesus because he was perfect and holy and righteous in every way. But he wouldn't judge you because that wasn't his purpose. His purpose was to die for you. To pay for your sin debt so that you and I might be saved. That's what John 3.17 is telling us. So when Paul asks the question, who can lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifies. It don't matter what anybody else says about you, how they judge you, or listen, the, the number, number, verse 34, or how they condemn you. Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died, yea, rather that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, and also makes intercession for us. It matters not how anybody else judges you, or how anybody else condemns you. There are people that's going to condemn you in every area of your life, I'm telling you. They, they feel like it's their job. The fault finder. Those who want to make you feel less than. You know those folks? I can tell you what, you're around, that, they'll, they'll bless you hard if you're around them enough. I, I promise you. They always find a way to judge and condemn and belittle. You know what Paul is saying? As a child of God, nobody can judge you or condemn you because all that really matters is what Jesus says about you. And the only one who could judge you and could condemn you wouldn't judge you and wouldn't condemn you. Let me tell you what that does. That erases any fear of what people say about you. You don't have to live in fear of what people think about you or say about you. They are not your judge. Your judge died for you so that you might be saved. That's what he's saying. That erases any kind of inferiority complex. If you think you are inferior to anyone, you don't have to live there because it don't matter what others think or say of you. It matters what Jesus says about you. You know what Jesus says about you? Brother just sang about it a little while ago. He says that you are fearfully and wonderfully made. He says you are loved. He says you are blessed. He says, child of God, you are in his family. The Bible says you are an adopted son or daughter of Almighty God. Bible says he'll never leave you nor forsake you. Regardless of what anybody else does or don't do, Jesus is always going to be there for you. Man, you don't have to fear anything you go through when you get a hold of who you are in Christ. When you get a hold of this logic on fire that Paul uses right here in Romans 8. Then he says something else, verse 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? It's a great question. Do you remember me telling you a while ago that your salvation is so secure and so, so complete that God already sees you as being glorified? The Bible says in Ephesians chapter 2 that he already sees you as being seated in heavenly places. 
When the word is used in Romans 8.30 and he says glorified, it's in the past tense. It's not something that's going to happen. God already sees it as having happened. The moment you trusted in Jesus, yes, you were justified. But the Bible says you were glorified. God already sees it, the finished work. It's amazing. That's how secure you are in Christ. And so Paul says, if all this is true, then what can separate you from the love of Christ? And he, he rattles off some stuff. He says, shall tribulation or distress? Or yeah, anybody go through tribulation? Anybody going through distress? Then he says, persecution. Anybody been persecuted? Famine, nakedness, peril, sword. That's all the stuff you're going to face in this life. Physical things you can face. He says, verse 36, As is written, for thy sake we are killed all the day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Nay, in all these things. There's that word again. All these things. Things we perceive to be good, things we perceive to be bad, all these things, we are more than conquerors. You don't just have victory. You have complete victory. You're more than a conqueror. You have eternal victory in Jesus. You're more than a conqueror. You don't just conquer a little, you conquer a lot. You're more than a conqueror. Regardless of what you're going to face. Why? Because you cannot be separated from the love of Christ. And He can take all this stuff, even the bad stuff, again and work it together for your good and His glory. A lot of people ask me, Brother Israel, how can you believe in the sovereignty of God and the free will of man? Let me tell you what I believe. I believe God is so sovereign. He can allow us to have free will and still accomplish his purpose. That's what I believe. That's how big God is. Let's go on. Verse 38. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor things present nor things to come. These are spiritual things that would come, come against you. He's already gave you the list of physical things that you're going to face. Then he gives, gives a list of, of spiritual things. Powers and principalities. These are spiritual forces in the spiritual realm that comes against the child of God. He says all of these things present, things that are, are to come, he says height and depth or any other creature shall be able to separate you from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. We do not have to fear for there's no separation. I don't know what you're facing. I don't know what you're going through. God does. He still loves you. And he's still able to cause all things to work together for your good and his glory. Any questions or comments? Our relationship to God 
is initiated by the shedding of the blood of God the Son. It's accomplished by the precious work of God the Holy Spirit. And it's finished by the sovereign plan and purpose of God the Father. Folks, if you're saved, you've got something to praise God about. You don't have to fear because God's got you. And he's with you. He ain't going to leave you. If you're not saved, don't you want to be? Don't you want, what in the world are you waiting on? It's available for you. I've had people ask me, my brother Israel, how do I know I'm called? The Bible says you got to be called. How do you know God's drawing me? That's a great question. Let me see if I can answer it and I'm going to close, I promise. Listen. You know you're being called of God if you have any desire to know God whatsoever. That's it. See, the Bible says in Romans, remember Romans chapter 3 when he's looking over there? It says that none seek after God. We've all, we're all in a state of rebellion against the Lord. There's none righteous, no, not one. In your own sinful nature that you were born with, you're not seeking after God. You don't want God. It's an act of God working in you and on you if you even desire to know Him or have relationship with Him. That's how you know God's calling you. And if He's calling, why don't you answer? Why don't you receive him? Why don't you trust in his finished work for the forgiveness of sin and be justified, glorified, born again, saved, blood-bought, my gosh, in Jesus. Any prayer requests tonight?